This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 21st of May 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up in the next half an hour, Russia expert Stephen Diel will chew through the front pages with me. Plus, Andrew Tuck's weekend column. I always find myself mid-show scanning the audience, faces illuminated by the stage lights to catch their energy. Well, lots of energy in Zurich as we join Carlotta Rebello at our Bardi Market today at Dufestrasse 90. And Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We learned that Russia's increasingly odd president, Vladimir Putin, was well on his way to earning NATO's Employee of the Month award by precipitating the membership applications of Sweden and Finland. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. First, though, here's the news. Russia has claimed victory in the months-long battle for Mariupol's steel plant. Russia also launched what appeared to be a major assault to seize the last remaining Ukrainian-held territory in the province of Luhansk, one of two southeastern Ukrainian provinces Moscow proclaims as independent states. Air raid sirens were going off in much of Ukraine, including in the Kyiv capital region and the southern port of Odessa in the early hours of this morning. The World Health Organization held an emergency meeting on Friday to discuss the recent outbreak of monkeypox, a viral infection more common to West and Central Africa, after over 100 cases were confirmed or suspected in Europe. First identified in monkeys, the disease typically spreads through close contact and has rarely spread outside Africa, so this series of cases has triggered concern. And Australians are voting in a national election today, with opinion polls showing the opposition Labour Party narrowly ahead of the ruling Conservative coalition, although a strong showing by climate-focused independents could mean a hung parliament. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers, and I'm joined in the studio by the Russia analyst and regular Monocle 24 contributor, Stephen Diel. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Georgina. Good morning, everyone. I trust your cinnamon bun and your coffee from the Monocle Cafe are up to scratch. Well, I've tried the coffee, but I haven't quite got as far as the bun yet. I'm waiting for one of those um, pre-recorded reports, to be honest. <laughs> or we could do it when we're hearing from our other cafe. That's uh, Dufestrasse 90 in Zurich, because we have Carlotta Ravello and Chris Chermak standing by. There's a market going on there, and there are all sorts of delicious things to eat and drink. I'm quite sure they'll tell us about it. Uh, Stephen, as we know, your uh, area of expertise is Russia and, of course, Ukraine. Uh, what are the papers saying today? Well, I thought I'd start with a couple of um, Russia-focused stories, actually, because, of course, uh, the horrors of the war going on in Ukraine are, are causing terrible terrible hardship, disasters, deaths um, in Ukraine itself. Uh, the New York Times has a big piece on, um, on page three of Ukrainians coming back to find their lives in ruins, their houses destroyed. But looking at the Russia angle, there was a, a very interesting article uh, in Le Monde, um, which... Uh, it points up that not everyone in Russia accepts or agrees with what's going on. Um, and it's the story of um, a man called Dmitry Selin, 
who lives in a place called Ivanova. Um, I've been to Ivanova. It's about 250 kilometres east of Moscow. It's not the sort of place you want to linger, to be honest. It's an industrial, very industrial Soviet-era town. Um, but uh, Mr. Céline decided that uh, he didn't like what was going on either in Ukraine or in his own society as a result because since the start of the war, the, the screws that were already tightened on freedom of speech and freedom of the media have been tightened almost to the point where they squeal. Um, so what he did, I thought this was a fascinating way of protesting about the war. He went and bought 600 copies of George Orwell's 1984 because he thought this was the novel that very much describes modern Russian society. Not to... He wasn't an entrepreneur to go and make money from it, but he, he went around with boxes of these books and a table to various places in the, in the city of Ivanova and just set up the table and then was just giving passers-by a copy of 1984. And he, did it, he managed to do this six times until, of course, he was arrested by the authorities and charged with anti-war propaganda. Um, it's the sort of thing that if he were to do it again, he would risk getting 15 years in prison mm. just mm. for giving out a book. Um, but to my mind, this is why this is so important is it just shows how jittery the Russian authorities are now. You know, if any country uh, not only squeezes it, its, its independent media and, and cuts it all off, but actually goes to the extent of, of doing something like this, it, it, it shows that they at the top actually are frightened. They're frightened of their own people more than more than anyone else. I mean, I've, I've said this for a long time that Putin's biggest fear is some sort of uprising, what the Russians call bunt, this spontaneous uprising from below from the people. He's far more worried about that than he is about NATO. Um, uh, and uh, it, you know, I thought that was a, a very good example of it. If I can move on to also the New York Times, which also looking at the Russia angle, um, actually has a front page story which continues inside. Uh, which they entitle, they title, bruises start to show all over Russia's economy. Um, and it's showing how it takes some very nice little examples of what's going on. Um, uh, Aftator, which is a uh, car manufacturer, has, has set aside part of its territory and, uh, and told its, in its um, employees that they can have a, a plot there to grow potatoes because the cost of living is going up so much. Um, uh, the the central bank in Russia is saying that um, inflation this year is likely to be between 18 and 23 percent. Um, it also goes on and talks about the story, of course, which we heard earlier this week, that McDonald's has finally said, right, that's it, we're we're pulling out of Russia. And as someone who was there at the start when they opened the first store on um, Pushkin Square in Moscow in 1990, that that's significant. They've they've got 650 stores all over the country. Mm. Um, it also it reminds me of a, a joke I heard recently that uh, Russians can be um, very bittersweet with their humour, and one of the things that that you know they're now realising with over a thousand foreign companies have now pulled out of Russia since the start of the war, and it's uh, um, there was a, the joke during the rounds is well you know we always like to have the the the, the young the, the 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 tech savvy and so on we always like to have the latest technology and so we like to have the latest iPhone. Well, now we've got the last iPhone because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. they won't be able to buy any more. Interesting about McDonald's because there was a sort of online forum uh, asking Russians what they wanted to rename the the the, the, the brand there. Uh, Z Burger seems to have been very popular. Also, Rus Burger, uh, and uh, apparently um, the Russian Ministry of Trade, uh, following this online discussion, said we're going to give the most creative ones to the new Russian owner. So that's uh, that's ongoing. And that shows the other side of it that. 
while there are those who protest about the war, while there are those who are, uh, are angry with the Kremlin for starting it, nevertheless, there are millions of Russians who are behind this. And that's, again, it's a result of this squeezing of the media. If you get your, your news from Russian TV... It's constantly, it's constantly anti-Ukraine, anti-NATO, pro-Russian. We're the ones being wronged. Um, we must all stand together. And this does have an effect. And so millions of Russians, some through genuine patriotic feelings, some through, through ignorance and propaganda... Um, are nevertheless behind what's the, the, the horrors that are going on in Ukraine. Mm. And we've seen a lot of protests at the Cannes Film Festival too. A topless woman was removed for uh, uh, protesting against uh, rapes in, in Ukraine. We've also seen people using the podium. And in, in fact, one person, actually one prominent uh, film person, uh, used it to say, well, we shouldn't forget the suffering in Russia because, of course, uh, you know, these people are also losing their families. They're also losing, uh, you know, their way of life and so on. People were very angry angry about that. Yeah, well, yes. And I mean, that is the, the losing family. I mean, lo losing soldiers. You know, we, the latest figures that can be relied on suggest that over 28,000 Russian soldiers are being killed, which is now more than twice the number that were killed in over, just over nine years in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, so that that surely is going to have an effect. Um, mothers who've lost their, their children, what else have they got to lose? If it's their, their only son, um, maybe they, you know, many, many mothers in Russia are single parents. So if, if, if that's all they had, what have they got to lose by protesting? So that's, that, that's a danger. Also in Cannes, of course, um, uh, President Zelensky, the, the Ukrainian president, also, you know, he appeared, he, he, he spoke just as he's been speaking to parliaments throughout the world and, and his nightly address to the Ukrainian people. Um, uh, good on him. You know, he, he actually you know, appeared by video link in, in Cannes as well. Um, I mean, he, he really has shown that he is uh, he's a leader of his people, not just a ruler as Putin is. Absolutely. Well, look, let's now cross to Zurich because the place is absolutely buzzing, I understand, because the market there has just opened. And I think we've got Carlotta Ravello and Chris Chermak on the line from our Zurich studio. Uh, Carlotta and Chris, are you there? We are. Good morning. Good morning to you, Chris. Are you there too? Good. Good morning. And I we, am here as we well. Also, and we, we also have, have a surprise guest with oh, us. Exactly. Oh, who's your surprise guest? Good morning, Georgina Godwin. Hi, lovely. Lay. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm already planning your Swiss trip, you know. Do you know, I'm so excited. I've never been to Gestadt. Yeah, so this is your big start moment is coming up at the end of June. So, of course, we should be, of course, talking about our event today. We have our body market happening here in Zurich. But you and I are heading off to Stad uh, end of June uh, for the World of Words Literary Festival, which is right up your street, I believe. Absolutely. I'm very much, very much looking forward to that. But tell me what we're missing out on in Zurich today. Well, what you missed out on last night, there was a little bit of a surprise protest. I was uh, looking to take, well, I did take both Chris and Carlotta out uh, for the evening, but there was... A, of course, we have the World Economic Forum kicking off in Davos. So there was a, a small altercation with the, the Zurich authorities last night. And that sort of demanded, a, I would say, almost a one-hour urban safari uh, where, as we were driving around uh, because the trams had stopped. Uh, everything really had, uh, had ground to a halt yesterday. So I took my colleagues uh, running around. Uh, so that was sort of the, the, the run into to all of this. Uh, but we are kicking off this morning. We have... Um, I, I would say about 17 different vendors here. Some familiar ones that, uh, of course, you would know, the likes of Modestrom uh, and and many, many others who've been with us almost since the very start, Georgina. Uh, and then, of course, a number
number of newcomers as well. Jewelry, leather goods, uh, lots of cocktails uh, and, uh, and many, many other things uh, in between all of that. It sounds like great fun. And as you say, cocktails and food. We've been rhapsodising about our uh, cinnamon buns here in this studio, but I know you've got equally delicious things to eat over there. Yeah, we do. We have a, also a wonderful new fine cost, a lovely deli uh, from the other side of Zurich. Uh, so they have uh, joined us uh, today as well. And and then, of course, we have, we have Chris and Carlotta here uh, manning the fort, and they're heading up uh, to the mountains uh, because, of course, uh, Davos gets underway, uh, kicking off uh, to, well, from tomorrow evening. Carlotta, how did you uh, weather your urban safari in Zurich? Oh, so far the urban safari is going very well. I think I need to do a bit more exploring of the water activities as part of my safari. Uh, hopefully at some point this afternoon, maybe the market will give me some inspiration of uh, what to wear. I'm definitely eyeing up the ice cream um, <laughs> vendors, that is for sure. Uh, but yes, as Tyler mentioned, we are heading to Davos uh, tomorrow. It is the official opening of this year's World Economic Forum. Um, the first time it's happening in a sunny setting, so I really don't know what to expect. I always equate Davos with the beautiful mountains and uh, me wearing my warmest coat that makes one or two outings per year. But this time around, I'm in my element, Georgina. That's what I have to say. It sounds amazing. <laughs> but Chris, I wondered, given the protests in Zurich today, do you expect more of the same at Davos? You know, it's very hard to say, because even this protest last night that took us on our urban safari, which was great, by the way, to see all the side angles of Zurich through that, but it was it was just a few dozen people. It was an unsanctioned protest by a group called Smash Wef, um, and there was some tear gas and, and, and some things thrown into that, but the police were kind of ready, and in that sense, it, it sort of disrupted Zurich briefly, but at the same time, it, it is kind of strange. We were talking about this on the Daily last night with Tyler as well. That it just this WEF has sort of ca sort of caught up with us this year. It sort of snuck up on us, and I think it has even on protesters, on other people, just just because maybe of the timing of it, but because of you know you've just been talking with Stephen there about you know the war in Ukraine and everything, and so I think they're they're going to struggle to really get through the headlines it's going to be interesting to watch that the the uh the topic if you will just shows that too that the topic of the world economic forum this year is history at a turning point government policies and business strategies it's kind of like they couldn't decide exactly what the focus is going to be no they want to sort of bundle in as much they as they just possible bundled in cover, absolutely cover everything they could think of <laughs> absolutely i mean for instance if you look at the ft today i mean it's talking really about how this economic crisis is affecting absolutely everything You've got a bear market in Wall Street and, and the whole world is crumbling in terms of, of economic problems. This year at Davos, a referendum on Davos itself uh, uh, is, uh, we, we, we have uh, are in, on our front pages here. In, indeed, and this is one thing we were covering on the daily yesterday. So, aside from sort of the the prescribed topics uh, or, or certainly the thesis that they've set out for this year, there are so many you know issues. I think for both corporate leaders, uh, also political leaders, uh, to to get their heads around uh, from from all corners of the world. Uh, and it'll it'll be interesting. I think you know I'm not saying that Davos is necessarily on trial. It feels like Davos is on trial every time uh, they they have an outing. But it would be good because Judy, we we've looked. 
if we, if we look across the last two and a half years, you know, there's been this call for more corporate leadership in the absence of, of maybe uh, our, our politicians uh, leading the way. So now here we have this jamboree, everyone coming together. So it'll be interesting to see what type of, of resolutions, but not just resolutions, what, what type of action comes from this as well. Absolutely. And Chris, I know that on The Globalist on Monday morning, we'll be checking in with you live from Davos. We will check in live uh, on The Globalist, actually from, basically we'll be going through the late evening on uh, Sunday night. There's Sunday night is when it starts. There's a welcome reception by uh, Klaus Schwab. There's also a media reception. So that's sort of when it when it kicks off, if you will, and we'll be able to get a first flavor, I suppose, of what kind of things are going to be happening, what's going to be talked about, what the mood is before then the actual conference itself starts in earnest on Monday. So that's, yes, something we would definitely talk about on uh, on Monday. And, and yeah, just to jump off Tyler's point there, it is going to be interesting just to see how business leaders and politicians, I think, try to tie all of these loose ends together. What has been interesting is, as you say, the, the economy is collapsing, but it is all tied together. It all, it all fits together somehow, and in which case there has to be a resolution. You know, you're pulling energy energy dependence we want to reduce from Russia and that impacts climate change and what we're doing in terms of an energy transition that has costs and making us do that faster. The pandemic is sort of playing into that. Everything is just sort of changing in the economy and these are the kind of things that they're going to have to sort out over a few days. Absolutely. Listen, we're going to let you get back to the market. I can hear um, I can hear a slightly whiny child. You might want to give it a steely-eyed look from me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But enjoy the market and Carlotta I think we're going to check in with you a couple more times today just to monitor how it's all going there. Yes, I will report back on the cocktails and ice cream uh, before 12pm. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Tyler, Thanks, Carlotta Georgina. and Chris, thank you very much indeed. Well, still with me in the studio is Stephen DL. And uh, in fact, we're having a look at that FT uh, piece that I referenced a little while ago. Uh, Stephen, what's the headline there? Actually, just before I do the headline of that, I would just note that, you know, you, you complain about the whiny child in the background. I wonder if it had been a barking dog. I don't think you'd have complained. You'd have gone, ah. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Moving on. Yeah. OK, anyway, so <laughs> it's the, the lead story in the FT, much more serious business. Um, Wall Street stocks hit bear territory. Um, I mean, those of us who are not deeply into economics, although we do realise it helps makes the world makes the world go round, um, are always amused by this, you know, is it a bull market or a bear market? Well, a bear market, we have a very neat um, description in the FT this morning, and it said the, the S&P, the Standard & Poor's uh, ratings uh, of the top 500 companies, dropped 2% in afternoon trading yesterday on Friday, leaving the blue chip index down 20% from the record high reached on the 4th of January. And this is a typical definition of a bear market. I mean, that that's a, that's a hell of a fall. It's you know, yeah. a fifth of the whole um, uh, value of the stocks has fallen. Um, and, you know, when, when the Financial Times uh, weekend edition, which is sort of slightly more relaxed often and, you, you know, it's got lots of other bits and pieces and a magazine and all this sort of thing. But when it leads with a story like that, um, you know, anyone should sit up and take notice that um, the, the, the British papers this morning are very much concentrating, oh, the cost of living crisis and so on. And as British papers often do, taking a very Brito-centric view as if it was the only place in the world that was having a few economic problems. Um, what the FT shows is that you know, this is this is worldwide. This is a serious problem for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Stephen, we're going to return to the papers in a little while. But meanwhile, I'd like us to catch up with Andrew Tuck because he's been to the theatre. We went to see Jerusalem on Thursday 
the revival of the play by Jez Butterworth about, well, England. It's set on St George's Day in the county of Wiltshire. The star, just as when it was first staged in 2009, is Mark Rylance, who plays Rooster Byron, a man who lives in a caravan in a forest where he sells drugs, boozes, parties, allows the local kids to hang out. He's a bit of a storyteller, someone who makes things up. Although, are some of his seemingly fanciful anecdotes not fantasies after all? Oh, and the locals want him gone. Rylance is like a firework let off indoors, whizzing, firing, sparkling across the stage. His character is the hero of the day, a man who knows the forest, believes in the power of our blood, our connection to the soil. It's funny, it's bleak. I always find myself mid-show scanning the audience, faces illuminated by the stage lights to catch their energy, to tap into the mood of the room. And while everyone, the men behind us in their grey city attire, the elderly mother and daughter beside me, was clearly rooting for Rooster, I wondered if, as we tucked ourselves up in bed, we would admit to ourselves that if Rooster Byron lived near our houses, we would be calling the police, like the play's new estate neighbours. All amusing on stage, but not good for house prices or the nerves in real life. The tickets have been bought by my friend Paul and ages ago. He has a very organised approach to culture that I envy. As soon as he sees a potentially good play or exhibition announced, he books tickets. Then, often only when the day has almost come, does he ask around to see who wants to join him. No dithering while people look at their 2024 diaries, procrastinate. As someone who is often unsure whether I will be free even a few days out, I regularly miss out on big cultural hits and keep meaning to emulate his strategy. Anyway, he'd make a very good ticket tout if he ever gave up his day job. During the play's interval, I stayed in my seat, as did the man and woman behind me, and I made the mistake of tuning into their mid-show review. Are you enjoying it, he asked. Yes, but I keep thinking of the lady in the van, she said, in reference to the Alan Bennett play about a woman who ended up living in a van in Alan Bennett's garden. It's terribly confusing. I know I'm going to get my caravans all of a muddle. You're going to have to help me. On this trip, there was Paul, me and the other half, and our neighbour, who we all bonded with during the lockdowns. He's a hoot, now 86, and has a frantic social life. He'd been at the theatre just the night before and during the interval was giving me new restaurant tips. At the end of the show, we bumped into John, another friend, who was at the theatre with an aunt. John is, I guess, 20 years younger than me and a regular dinner buddy. Everyone fell into easy conversation. And this was another takeaway from the night. How great that life allows us to swim outside our lanes, to have people as friends who cover such an arc of ages, backgrounds. Perhaps it was always the case for some folk, but growing up I remember all of my parents' friends looked like them. I also remember working with a woman who used to talk about a party being great or a dinner a joy because it was full of PLUs, i.e. people like us. I always knew that I wanted to escape that. But again, sat next to Rooster, 
Would he make me yearn for a few more PLUs at the dinner table? But perhaps a night at the theatre is less about changing who you are, but just being shaken a little, allowed to laugh at ourselves as well as the play, and to just know your prejudices and limitations a little bit better, and believe at times that there can be a special magic at work in England's changing landscapes, or even just be able to tell your caravans apart. Very many thanks there to Andrew Tuck for his weekly weekly or weekend column. Uh, speaking of PLUs and you and non-you, of course, that was a, a term coined by Nancy Mitford um, and uh, uh, very much sort of a, a, uh, something that, that was used and very much of its time. Uh, but speaking of sort of posh writers, I'm on my way to Charleston today, which, of course, was the um, one of the sort of unofficial headquarters of the Bloomsbury Group uh, in Sussex, just a uh, a little way out of uh, Lewis uh, and they have the fantastic Charleston Literary Festival this weekend uh, and we get to have a look around the house and kind of bask in what Bloomsbury was like with all those kind of PLU type people. Well I hope you're going to be dressed a la 1920s you know, something to suit the mood surely. Well I'm afraid I am as you see me dressed at six o'clock this morning and <laughs> I'm going to add a big hat though. Okay but can I just say you know you, you, you look as if um, actually something to do with you Crane would be more appropriate. You have a khaki shirt on. No, it's crumpled linen. It, you know, it's crumpled it's, linen. It's khaki, and it's olive, though. It's well. definitely, in terms of colour, it's khaki. It's, it's definitely military. <laughs> I like the idea that I'm just in, in floaty crumpled linen. Uh, let's move on, because uh, somebody who, who uh, is also possibly sartorially challenged, uh, the orange one, who we haven't heard of uh, a great deal recently, um, but there is a piece today in the Washington Post, uh, and this is about that election, that infamous election, uh, we're talking here, of course, of Donald Trump, uh, being challenged yet again. Yes, um, I, I have to admit a certain bias in that I think the Washington Post is one of the best newspapers you can possibly read anywhere at the moment. Um, I also take my hat off to them, and I wear a hat a lot, as you know, so I can take my hat off to them <laughs> for the fact that they have just opened a bureau in Kiev, um, which I think is fantastic. Their coverage of the Ukraine crisis has been unsurpassed. Um, so thank you, Washington Post. Um, but they have something completely different uh, in today. Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice, pressed Arizona lawmakers to help reverse Trump's loss, emails show. Um, now, this lady, Ginny Thomas, and they have a photo of her um, at the uh, swearing-in ceremony for Justice Amy Coney Barrett at the White House in October 2020. This was the the right-winger that Trump made sure got pushed into the, um, the, the spare place in the uh, Supreme Court, of course, just before he, he uh, was voted out. And she's looking very smug and very pleased with herself. Uh, and her husband, um, uh, who is Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, um, uh, she was pressing him and, and others, and indeed these lawmakers in Arizona, to try and overturn the election. Um, now, it, it turns out that she has found that there's a rather obscure part of the American Constitution which says that um, if there is thought to be fraud or something is wrong with an election, then each state has its own legislature and those, legis the, those legislators can then actually choose other electors to, to elect the president. And this is what she, she was sending around these emails saying, right, what you should do, giving instructions 
to legislators in Arizona is you should invoke this this uh, part of the Constitution. And so we say in Arizona, we ignore the popular vote and we decide who should be president. In other words, it should be Trump, um, which clearly, you know, it's, it's, this is something that happened at the end of 2020. So it's kind of 18 months on. But it's because the, the Washington Post has done such uh, thorough investigation of it. This is, this is often the problem with, with real stories and with, with truth these days. It's very easy to put a lie out there and it goes on social media and it becomes viral and so on. But often the truth takes a lot of investigation mm. to get to the bottom of it. And this is why this is, I think this is so relevant. It's the lead story um, in the Washington Post. Um, and it, it, it's, what's fascinating is that this... this, this a clause of the Constitution is there that nobody really knew about, but which, so it's blown open that, and it's also blown open what is, I think, most of us would decided decidedly dodgy behaviour by the, the wife of a member of the Supreme Court judge. And uh, who's giving Court. her the legal advice? I mean, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Stephen, stay with us because we're going to uh, have a tiny look at the Australian elections before we hear from another Australian, and that is Andrew Muller. We learned this week of a powerful addition to the lexicon of metaphor for the perils of the arguably premature celebration of ultimate victory. We learned it from Eritrean road cyclist Biniam Girme, who, and we cannot stress this sufficiently, we are regarding here with a mixture of admiration and sympathy, rather than our usual metier of derision and sarcasm. OK, okay. fair enough, but let's move on quickly. I'll give you that, yeah, I guess. We learned that Guillaume had claimed the considerable accomplishment of becoming the first black African winner of a Grand Tour stage when he cleaned up stage 10 of the Giro d'Italia. Quite right. And while we're applauding things, we would also like it noted that the groovy little tune in the background actually is called Giro d'Italia, and it's by Daniela Casa, we think maybe mid-70s or so, our point being that a less meticulously excogitated whimsical news monologue would just have shoehorned in Tour de France by Kraftwerk and tried to style it out. Where's that chorus we did about how incredibly clever these things are? Oh, you clever man. You're clever. so clever. Clever, Clark. Smart. Very smart. Anyway, we learned subsequent to Germay's stage win that Germay's post-cycling career is unlikely to be as a sommelier, while opening the celebratory Prosecco. And let's have that sound effect again. He launched the cork into his left eye and rendered himself unavailable for the rest of the race. Our sincere best wishes for a speedy recovery and profound gratitude for teeing up this week's recurring themes of hubris, calamities on podiums, or at least lecterns, which are more or less the same thing, multi-stage journeys and sporting mishap. For we learned that Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to deviate tactically, strategically and diplomatically from the plan, such as it may have been, at which point we'll need the NATO hymn, which is rather disappointingly this, and not a lusty rendition of the popular football terrace chant, come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. 
We learned that Russia's increasingly odd president, Vladimir Putin, was well on his way to earning NATO's Employee of the Month award by precipitating the membership applications of Sweden and Finland, both of whom, we learned, had decided that they had waited long enough for Russia to knock its nonsense off. All allies agree on the importance of NATO enlargement. We all agree that we must stand together. But we learned that Vladimir Putin is not the only world leader who has in recent memory launched, having thought things some way short of all the way through, an invasion of a country which offered little meaningful threat to his homeland. And we learned it from an impeccable source. The decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, 75. Uh. Still, we can laugh about it now. Yes, we learned that George W. Bush, third best US president of the 21st century, had tried saying things out loud in public again. We also learned that Scott Morrison, sixth best Australian Prime Minister of the 21st century, has not learned that there is absolutely nothing to be gained as a politician or indeed as any grown adult from participating in contact sport with infants. Play on, play on that admittedly somewhat unsatisfying clip was the sound of Morrison joining in with children playing a game of what Australians call soccer and landing atop one hapless urchin in an ungainly heap. Arguably the first time Morrison has tackled anything head-on here all week, try the fish, etc. Please also bear in mind, if you are listening to this after Saturday, that the characterisation of Scott Morrison as Prime Minister was accurate as of this recording. There is an election on Saturday at which Australian voters may or may have decided to show him a red card, which is both a deft tie-up of the previous bit and a seamless link to the next one. Easy when you know how, because we also learned, due to the endeavours of a fan of what the English call football, that the cheapest route from Sunderland to London is via Menorca. All this year I'm off to sunny Spain, Espania. We learned that a Sunderland fan travelling to London to see his side turn out in the League One playoff at Wembley had found that flying via Spain with an overnight hostel stay was less expensive than going by train. Yes, that is a train. We learned, upon looking it up, that Sunderland's opponents on Saturday are Wickham Wanderers, whose several passionate fans will start their journeys to Wembley from a good deal closer to London. We have yet to learn whether any Wickham supporters have discovered that it would nevertheless be cheaper, such is the state of British Railways, to fly via Darwin, Honolulu or Kampala, but cannot say we would be surprised. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Yes, 
Thank you very much to Andrew. And I do hope he's got his postal vote in because, as he said, Australia is voting in the federal election today. And I am loving all the stories about uh, uh, dogs. Of course, they do the the same thing as we do here, dogs in polling stations. Uh, And the democracy sausage. Uh, Just fill us in, uh, Stephen. What's a democracy sausage? Uh, Well, a democracy sausage, he said, trying to impersonate Andrew Muller and other people in the country where I was actually born, I'm afraid to say. Uh, but uh, I blame my mother for that. I wanted to be close to her at the time. Um, a democracy sausage is the colloquial name for a sausage wrapped in a slice of bread. In other words, what we might call a hot dog. Um, and apparently they've become so popular at polling booths throughout Australia that um, uh, th- that just under one-third of the 1,992 polling booths, yes, I am reading this, across Australia had a sausage stand by the count of the election sausage sizzle site in 2016. So that may well be have increased this year. They may, the, the, and apparently the, the emoji to represent Australian elections now is, is not a hand putting a, a paper in a box, but it is a democracy sausage or Fantastic. a hot dog, as we might call it. Uh, and a quick Google will reveal that there are democracy sausage maps uh, and you can decide uh, where you want to get your democracy sausage. I've also seen a lot of people uh, posting online that they already did their postal vote, but they do just want to go and pick up a democracy sausage at a polling booth anyway. And as you say, we know them as hot dogs, many, many real hot dogs in polling stations to some fabulous pictures of people in their swimming trunks, their bathing costumes, uh, Uh, with their hot dogs, eating their democracy sausages and, of course, doing their constitutional duty. Well done, Australia. As long as they don't confuse the democracy sausage with the hot dog and take a bite out of the hot dog. (laughs) Stephen DL, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you also to my guests, Tyler Brule, Carlotta Ravello and Chris Chermack. We'll hear from them a little bit later during the day uh, because, of course, the Bardi, the market is going on in our Zurich Bureau. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday. Day returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.